On the other hand, for my personal mistakes, the, the biggest mistake I made was not starting early enough, which I'm sure everybody says. I didn't start till I was 30. And I wasted a lot of years, uh, especially having certain military benefits uh, early on. I could have taken advantage and I didn't do that. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 240. Clark, how's it going? What's going on in your world? Dude, what's going on? Going well for B. Uh, yeah, nothing too big. What about you? No, nah, nothing big, man. Uh, kids are going to be getting out of school here shortly and uh, excited for that. Got a couple couple trips planned this summer. So excited for, yeah, you for that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll talk about them down, down the road. But, you know, we were talking a little bit before, before the show about tipping and giving people a tip. And I feel like, especially as recently, the tipping because of technology or whatever, I mean, I feel like I get asked for a tip almost every place I go. Uh, at least it's an option, which is kind of interesting. In fact, I didn't know this. I was doing a little research on this, but tipping in America began before the Civil War. After the Civil War, particularly employers in the in the restaurant industry, railroads, and, and others used it as a way to, tr- to try to keep wages low. So... It's, a, it's an interesting, interesting thing. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, you know, and there's 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 some troubling, you know, history dating back to, to the years of slavery and some other things with it and in restaurant. But for the longest time, it was really just mainly, you know, sit down restaurants back in the back in the long, you know, long time ago. But now, I mean, God, I, I don't know. There's thing that I do that I don't I mean, other than checking out at the grocery store where where I'm not asked if I want to leave a tip or not, you've seen that too. Yeah. You mentioned Uber, right? It used to be, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember it being a couple of years ago that Uber said, don't tip. Yeah. Or or there was like the system of not, you couldn't leave a tip. I think maybe I'm remembering incorrectly. So forgive me if someone's like, that's not true, but I think you couldn't leave a tip or it was like, no, this is the price you pay. The price you see is what you pay period. Now they've kind of changed that, and after every ride, you get a pop-up, right? Yeah, yeah. It says on a tip. And we were just out of the country. I mean, it's interesting seeing from location to location, you know, in different places we visited. You, you sit down, and we would ask, you know, some of the guides or people that we said, you know, we'd ask, hey, what's the tipping culture? And they'd say, you know, unless it's a really nice restaurant, like, we just don't, we don't tip. Yeah. You know, may, maybe you leave a little something, but, like, that's it. Anyway, just kind of interesting to see around the world. I think the U.S. maybe again, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the countries where, you know, we're pretty <laughs> we're pretty heavy on tipping, right? Yeah, well, especially no matter, in the restaurants. What you do, you know? Yeah, yeah. restaurants, but also for services. Yeah, right? services. Like, yeah, your hairdresser. Well, I don't have a hairdresser. Yeah, but. yeah, hair, Uber. We were just talking taxi, yeah. like moving. I mean, every like virtually every service in a sense. If it's not a fixed quote or invoice, you're probably expected or asked to tip. Yeah. What's also interesting, though, is like, you know, in, in some professions, like professional services, for example, though, you th- there's restrictions against doing stuff like that. Yeah. Don't don't bribe me. <laughs> yeah. 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 
So it's an interesting thing to think about, especially as, as, as we look at, you know, where wages head in, 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 in this country, what minimum wage looks like and, you know, how tipping supplemented for some of that and et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, this week we have Daniel. He's an American citizen, but lives in Japan as a teacher and professor. The net worth of $1.2 million, mostly in real estate that he owns in the United States. Super interesting interview with him. We get into all sorts of kind of expat uh, discussions and, and things that might affect somebody who, you know, lives overseas and, 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 you know, we'd get into state planning. <laughs> he tells some stories about how complicated, complex and get a, get a nice insight into Japanese culture a little bit too with him, which is super exciting and something different that, that we haven't had on the show before. Last week we had Mark. He's a plumber. He's been involved in the trailer park business for a while. His net worth was about 650K, depending on, on or maybe possibly more than that, depending on how you value his business. If you'd like to ask a millionaire a question, go to our website, click on the tab, some ask a millionaire. We'll uh, record, you can record it on there. You can send us an email and we'd be happy to uh, ask a millionaire live, whatever that question is, or, or Clark and I will take a, a stab at it as well. And without any further delay, let's get into this week's episode with Daniel. Daniel, you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Yeah, so I'm a U.S. citizen, but I've been living in Japan for 14 years about. Uh, I'm a university professor uh, here in Japan, but I have most of my investments in the United States, and most of those investments are in real estate. Awesome. And what is your net worth today? Uh, about $1.2 And how is that broken up? So just to kind of give you the overview first, uh, I, I have about 100000 in cash, which is um, mainly because I, I, I do keep a lot of reserves for my directly owned real estate. Uh, about eleven thousand in bonds. I just started uh, in cryptocurrency a little bit, so I have about two thousand dollars in there. And then my equities are about two hundred and twenty-five thousand. And then with real estate, I've, I've broken it up into three sort of categories. So the first is my direct investments that are in my name. I have about six hundred and seventy thousand in equity. Uh, and that includes my personal residence here in Japan as well. Uh, and then I have partnerships and private placements, uh, in real estate with about 170,000. And then finally, I do have some real estate lending that I've done. So that's about 50,000. Interesting. So you've got quite the, the diversification here amongst the, the, the real estate opportunities and segments and whatnot. And we'll get into that a little bit. Just want to rewind though. You said you have $11,000 in bonds. Mm hmm. What what is the the reasoning for that, and how did that come about? So uh, initially, I had a higher asset allocation for bonds. Um, uh, you know, I, I think I was I was following sort of the very traditional advice. You know, I'm 40 years old, didn't have 40 percent in bonds. You know, that that old advice of having your age in bonds. But I had maybe about 25 percent of my allocation uh, in bonds. And as I started to look at it more and more, I mean, we're just not getting yield in bonds. Uh, and I, I thought that was uh, that was a bit too much. So I, I brought it down to about 5% of the total amount I have invested in, uh, you know, my Vanguard accounts. But that that was the main reason. I just didn't see the reason to have a lot of bonds because of the yield. Though, if I retired, I might Think about increasing that a bit. Interesting. So, 11th K in bonds, you put $2,000 in crypto. That was something recent. Is that just to dabble for yeah. kicks and giggles, or do you have a real strategy that you're trying to, to exploit there with the crypto? Yeah, I think I'm just looking at the, you know, I've missed out on the two, maybe we call them black swan events in the past. 
Uh, I wouldn't want to put a lot of money into it, but I do have you know, just $2,000, which is, uh, I think that's about 1% of the amount that I have invested in my Vanguard account. So, you know, equities and bonds. And yeah, I just wanted to see if I, if it does go up, I'm going to make money. If not, if I lost $2,000, I, I wouldn't be ruined. So uh, not a real big strategy. I have it mostly invested in Bitcoin and Ethereum, which are the two biggest uh, cryptos, and then spread out among whatever else was offered through. Um, and that's about it. I, I think I might go up to about 5000 total in there, but that's about it. Okay, gotcha. So the money that you have invested in the in equities, is that in tax-protected retirement accounts or, or, or is that just in a brokerage type account? So it's all, uh, it's not tax-protected. There, there's kind of a good reason for that for the most part. Um, because I'm living in Japan, we have some issues with uh, investing in uh, tax-advantaged accounts in the United States. Because I use the foreign income exclusion uh, on my salary, and my salary uh, is completely covered by that exclusion. So since I have no taxable income in the United States, I actually am not qualified to uh, invest into any sort of like Roth or Roth IRA or a 401k, of course, because uh, that's associated with my company. So all of that is pretty much in the brokerage account. I do have about $5,000, which is in a Japanese sort of 401k equivalent. Um, and that is offered through my work. And, and there are some issues that could come up with that as well, because I, I'm not sure if you're aware, but there's like a, a foreign passive income uh, company uh, that's that's in taxes. You can get some extra taxes by investing in passive foreign companies so or p- passive funds. But I talked to my CPA about it, and he thought that the tax savings at the time were were probably worth it in this case. And I only have a small amount in there. So everything else is in a, a taxable brokerage at Vanguard. Okay. You bring up a, a point that I, I want you to just shed some light on for our listeners as much as you're you know, willing to share. What are some of the complexities that, that are brought about by somebody who is a U.S. citizen living abroad and investing? And, and how have you been able to kind of navigate those waters and, and figure things out? Yeah. So I think one of the, the hardest things is with banking and with brokerage accounts, uh, many of them want you to have a U.S. address. Uh, and it's really something you have to talk to, you know, your individual brokerage account with and, uh, with your, with your advisors, if you have any, uh, to decide what, what you're going to do in that case. Um, in my case, I have been maintaining a residency in the U.S. that I use. So, um, I keep, you know, ID, driver's license. I pay bills there. Um, so I have a residency in both countries. And so I'm able to maintain uh, my brokerage accounts and I use it for my banks as well. Um, but that can be a big issue. The other thing is is to do with taxes, I think. Uh, and it really depends on which country you're going to. But Japan is a country that's similar to the United States where they will tax you or, or at least you need to report any sort of income or property or assets that you have in a foreign country. So a lot of Americans don't realize this and they actually get themselves in trouble. But if you look in in your passport, it actually even says that even if you move to a foreign country, you still have to file taxes in the U.S. And it's one of the few countries in the world that do that. Japan doesn't do that. But even as a foreign citizen living in uh, living in Japan, 
And after a certain number of years living here, and I do have a permanent residence in Japan, I'm subject to a lot of the Japanese taxation on my worldwide assets. Uh, and this can cause a lot of issues. Like, for example, Japan is very unique in this, that if my mother, who has never lived in Japan, were to pass away, uh, and I inherit all of her property in the U.S., and I never bring it over to Japan, I'm still subject to the inheritance tax. And unlike America, where there's an $11 million exclusion, in Japan, it's only up to $300,000. So I would be paying tax on anything above 300000 So this makes uh, estate planning very difficult. Um, when I did my estate plan, I initially went with a U.S. lawyer, for example, who promised me that everything was going to work on both sides of the border. Uh, and then I found out later that wasn't true. And so I actually had to employ a Japanese lawyer, a U.S. lawyer, a Japanese CPA and a U.S. CPA to work out the estate plan. Wow. So a lot of these issues. Yeah. And it was I, that was, you know, one of my biggest mistakes was not considering all these things uh, in Japan. The other thing, just to, to bring one more up, that's interesting. I said about the uh, I talked about the inheritance tax. But there's even an inheritance tax between husband and wife in Japan. So everything has to be owned separately. And I can't just, you know, put my name, uh, put my wife's name on properties in the U.S. or whatnot, because it could be a gift. And we have to be very cognizant of of that and do our estate planning. Uh, there's also an exit tax if I leave Japan. So how I hold my assets can be very important. So, um, you know, not to go into so many specific details about Japan, but I think if you are looking at living abroad, you really have to understand the tax situation in both countries and plan accordingly. Yeah, it's really interesting, Daniel. So did you always know you were going to live in Japan? Was that something you wanted to do? Or even if it wasn't Japan, did you want to live abroad? Or is that something that just happened in life unexpectedly? Yeah, to a certain extent, it, it, it just happened. So I, I actually, before I came to the United States, maybe an interesting part of my story was my 20s, I, I really did not uh, accumulate a lot of wealth. I spent my entire 20s really working my way through university. And I was working full, uh, as a massage therapist and a martial arts teacher. And I'd, I'd been doing martial arts most of my life. So I was very interested in Japan. And that's what drew me here. But when I came to Japan, my original plan was just to stay for one year uh, to get an experience. And then I was going to go back and finish graduate school. And the thing that ended up keeping me, there were sort of two things. First of all, I found out that because I didn't maintain my driver's license and, and my address in the United States that I actually lost my ability to pay in-state tuition at the university I was going to. <laughs> so that, you know, ruined that plan. And then also I met my wife at that time and we eventually, we got married about a year after we met. So, uh, I stayed and I've been here, you know, for 14 years total. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. So what was your net worth at age 30? So, yeah. So when I moved here, I had a net worth of negative $15,000 because I had a, a $20,000 student loan. Kind of an interesting story of how that came about was that um, my my father was an engineer uh, and, you know, we had a pretty good middle class life. Uh, my father started a business and I, I learned a lot, I think, about what not to do financially from some of these experiences. 
But when I was in high school, he started a business and did extremely well. He was importing tanning beds from Europe, actually, uh, kind of an interesting business model. And, you know, profits were in the tens of millions. And he just made some mistakes along the way. He wasn't really a businessman. He was more of an engineer and knew that side of things. And uh, my parents ended up, right before I, I finished high school, lost everything except for their house. And so I had to figure out what I was going to do. So I actually joined the military. I joined the Marine Corps. I got injured actually very early on in the military. So my plan of getting a GI Bill didn't work out, but I, I, I came out with an honorable discharge and I just started working, uh, mainly through that time. I really tried not to bring, to get any student loans at that time, but there was one period where I did. And I had about 20,000 total in student loans. And then when I was coming to Japan, I sold a car. So I had $5,000 in cash, but that's all I came out to Japan with. So $15,000 in debt and $5,000 in cash. Wow. And and what did you do for work when you first got there? So when I first came, um, I, I got a job teaching children English, which is a very easy job to find in Japan if you're an English native speaker. Unfortunately, it pays very little. I, I made about thirty thousand dollars a year, and and before that, point, that's, you, you know, that's moved, USD. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, about you. US. Yeah, sorry about USD thirty thousand. It depends on the exchange rate. Actually, the exchange rate was quite good at that time, but yeah, it was about thirty thousand, and I, I had no interest or knowledge of financial stuff. But when I came out, I realized I was thirty years old. I had to get my act together. Uh, and I, I actually bought a book called, uh, the idiot's guide to getting rich. And it was, it was actually a great book. It's one of my main <laughs> recommendations. It walked me through, you know, this is how you set up a Vanguard portfolio. This is how you do this. And what I did when I came to Japan from a budgeting, I never made a budget, but every time my paycheck came in, I took a thousand dollars out and I put it in another account in Japan. You don't really have checking and savings accounts. So I had to open another bank account. I put it in there and then I just lived off of what I had. And slowly, I also started taking on extra work. So um, in addition to my teaching children, I started teaching at companies. And there was some really good opportunities actually during the recession where Japanese companies got a grant to pay for training so that the government would pay half of the salaries if people were in training during that time. Uh, and so I was teaching sometimes three hours a day at, at Japanese companies earning $100 an hour in addition to my normal job. So that was a real, you know, uh, hustle time period for me yeah. to kind of get money and put it away. And, uh, you know, especially at that time, stocks and real estate were low. So I was and able to trainings get were, was that teaching English as well? Yeah. Teaching English, uh, it was it was actually a hilarious situation. I mean, it would be a whole factory of workers, 300 workers in one room, and I'm supposed to teach English, you know, to them. So <laughs> I don't know how effective <laughs> it was, but right. the, the company was just after getting, you know, the grant. So I mean, um, it's hard. J Jason and I both served our, our church missions for a couple of years in Bulgaria, and we a lot of what we did with humanitarian it, it was teaching English weekly mm -hmm. or tw a couple times a week, right, Chase? And you get 10 or 20 people in that room and it's really difficult even with like five or seven people because everybody, or at least most of them were on different levels. Yeah. 
And so yeah, you're trying definitely. to cater to somebody, but one person's really far behind. And just like, yeah, now you know what I deal with all day. But that was a challenge for me in teaching English was you had so many students that were at totally different levels of understanding and, and you couldn't quite cater to, to each of them. Yeah, exactly. And especially 300. I mean, it was impossible, but. Oh, yeah, completely. Effort. I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we had trouble with 20, uh, you know, I can't even imagine 300. Where do you even start? Yeah. And half of them aren't even paying attention, right? Because they can't hear you. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Uh, not, and not interested in learning English at all. I mean, most of these guys were factory workers, usually didn't have a, a high school education because it's not required here. So the, you know, junior high school education, just not interested right. in learning English. But yeah, yeah so that, I'm sorry. I hope I answered your question there. No, yeah, yeah. It's great. It's great. Did the uh, did your career pan out as you wanted to? Was there something else you wanted? Are you happy? Has it obviously you went back and got your your master's and your what your what'd you get a doctorate? doctorate. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you've obviously been successful there, right? Yeah. So I mean, that was what I learned very early on was that I, I saw a lot of English teachers. You'll see this people in their 40s with a family. And they're still making 30000 a year because that, that salary has not gone up. And I thought, you know, I can't do that. I either have to go back to the U.S. or I have to get um, a graduate degree, which allows you to teach at university. And, and that's what I did. So, uh, you know, most un- U.S. universities now offer especially graduate degrees online. Uh, usually you have to go back a little bit. And I really researched that because I didn't want to take on any additional debt. So I tried to find ones that would offer me scholarships or were very low tuition. Uh, so I ended up getting a master's degree from Shenandoah University, which is a private university in Virginia, and then a, a doctorate from University of Wyoming, which at the time was one of the lowest tuitions uh, that you could pay. But they were great, great jobs and uh, great uh, education. And I I eventually, after getting my master's, got a job at uh, the university where I work now as a part-time lecturer, and then they hired me as a full-time lecturer the following year. And then once I got my doctorate, they hired me as a tenured professor. And it is uh, almost criminal how good my job is. I think that's one thing. You know, a lot of people hear it and they say, oh, how can I get into that? And, you know, of course, it was a real slog is that a word <laughs> it was it was a you know a very slow process but the job i have now as a tenured professor i teach about 5 classes a week during the semester and um you know right now we're all online but uh usually that i come into campus all my classes are already prepped because i wrote the textbooks for the classes that's one part of my job and we have about 5 to 6 months off a year same as the students and during that time i have no real obligations except for a few meetings and it's a six figure salary. So, uh, you know, you just can't beat the job I have right now. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. So Daniel, where do you go from here? Are you trying to hit a certain target net worth or, or passive income goal down the road? Yeah. So, um, we are, I, I think part of it is, it is about, uh, we, we are financially free at this point. So, you know, our bills are very low. I asked my wife about it last night because I, I give her a thousand dollars a month as my portion of our bills, plus I pay our mortgage, which is about $500 a month. And um, I, I didn't know what our total bills are. And she said, oh, that that is our total bills. We It's $1,500 a month. So we probably live on about $2,000 a month. And I have a passive income, especially for my real estate, of about $4,000 a month uh, at this point. So, you know, we've hit financial freedom, but 
and and I don't have an interest in really leaving my job. But uh, my mother is alone in the United States. I think it would be very hard to bring her out here to Japan. For that reason, we've been aiming to kind of replace my salary with cash flow just to give us the option that if I did want to leave my job at some point, um, I could do that. So that would be about a hundred thousand dollars a year in, in, uh, cash flow. And we have a, if just being really conservative, I think we're going to hit that in about three to five years. Support for Millionaires Unveiled podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. Manscaped offers a variety of products, including trimmers for body hair or facial hair. Product offerings include a body hair trimmer, ear and nose hair trimmer, a nail kit, cologne, as well as body wash, shampoo, and deodorant, and a host of others. Manscaped sent us their Performance Package 4.0, and oh man, Clark, it is a game changer. Their fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 is waterproof and also has a 400K LED spotlight you need for a more precise shave. And let me tell you, man, that light is nice. Their trimmers are also waterproof, which is awesome. They help reduce nicks, also reduce the risk of ingrown hairs and grooming accidents. Join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code millionaire at manscaped.com. Once again, that's millionaire at manscaped.com. So D- Daniel, I'm curious just on this, on the, going back to Japan a little bit, do you notice mm-hmm. a difference between mindset wise on finances between Americans and, and Japanese people? Definitely. And, and really what is it, I guess I should say. Yeah. And I, I think I have some good insight into that because I also teach in my classes, I, I teach a lot of personal finance information to students. So first of all, Japanese people tend to be really great savers. The savings rate, I think, is one of the highest in the world. And it's interesting because the impression that a lot of Americans have is that Japan is a very they're very rich people, like they're probably getting paid very high salaries. And that's not true at all. Uh, starting salary for students of mine that are coming out of my university, which is one of the top universities in Japan, is about $2,000 a month. They, It's a very slow uh, process for them to earn any substantial salary in Japan. But they're really good at savings. So that's fine. But from an investment point of view, I think that People have been really hurt by the bubble era that happened in Japan and the investment that went on and everybody losing their money. And so from that perspective, uh, most Japanese that you talk to do not invest. They just keep their money in bank accounts and the interest rate is super low. It's like 0.05% uh, on most bank accounts and they buy insurance products. Um, that's the only thing they seem to buy. But investing in the stock market, investing in real estate, especially because there's actually a little bit of a connection of real estate here in Japan with the mafia, the Yakuza. So there's even a little bit of that uh, that comes in as well. So people are really good at saving. The other thing that they do is um, from as soon as people uh, go out on their own, they have all these little housekeeping books that keep your household budget. So almost all Japanese, and I, I would say it probably more women than men, uh, know how to you know keep a budget month to month. So they're great savers, they're great budgeters, but they tend to, not to invest. Why do you think they don't invest? Is it just part of the culture or is it more that there just aren't as many good investments or what is it? 
Yeah, maybe a little bit of a combination. So first of all, you know, again, a lot of their parents or their grandparents were hurt in the bubble years from the investments. And, you know, Japan has been in kind of a recession since the early 2000s. That's one portion of it. Culture-wise, it's interesting because Japan is very unique culture-wise compared to other Asian countries. Uh, I'm always surprised when I go to places like Korea and people openly talk about money. In Japan, there seems to be a culture where it's not really a good thing to talk about. And it's seen as sort of showing off if you talk about money, even if you're, you're just, uh, you know, interested in real estate or something. But then the other issue that comes up is, um, real estate is very different here in Japan. It's, it's almost like buying a car in the United States. So the average person, if you buy a house here in Japan, it will literally depreciate to nothing in 20 years. So value is not held in your properties. It's only held in land. Uh, and then that you can't pass that on to future generations as well because you've lost all of your value by holding the house. So, uh, yeah, I think it, it is a bit harder for them to invest and make money than it is in the United States. But a big part of it is culture. So your house, Dan, how big is it and what did you, how much does a house like that cost? Yeah. So I've actually, I have, I'm the exception to the rule, I think. And I, I'd love to say that it was, uh, because I'm smart and my wife's smart, but a little bit of it, it was luck. So we bought, um, knowing that houses depreciate in value, we ended up buying a condo that's about five minutes from the station. I live about 20 minutes by train to, to central Kyoto. But uh, my stations, you know, it's called Kusatsu. We're about five minutes from that station. Our house was our condo was 15 years old when we bought it. And we bought it for one hundred and seventy thousand dollars. It's a three. They, they call it a three LDK in Japan, which means it's three rooms plus a living room, dining room and kitchen which is all in one. So, uh, so we'd probably look at this as a two bedroom because there's the, the third room is more of a Japanese tatami mat room. But yeah, so we bought it for about 170. Uh, this, this is probably one important part of my money story. $100,000 uh, of our net worth was actually inherited. Uh, my wife inherited from her grandmother uh, before that. And so we used that money to uh, buy our first property, which uh, where we live. And uh, the interest, we get a 35-year mortgage in Japan. Interest rates are sub 1%, very low. And then in addition to that, uh, as I said, usually properties depreciate in value, but because we bought so close to the station and it was already depreciated, we've and this town that I live in, the population is one of the few towns where population is going up. It's increased in value. So we're at about 210,000 in the six years we've owned it. But it, that's a very unique situation in Japan. So with the super low interest rate, though, and a 35-year mortgage, could you rent that out in cash flow? Or are there restrictions yes. against that? No, you can rent it out in cash flow. And we do have an interest in doing that in the future. Uh, we might move into another property or if we did move back to the United States. So um, in general, what you're usually looking at in, in Japan is a 0.5% rule. So, uh, you know, we have a $200,000 property. It's going to rent for about $1,000 a month. Currently, all of our expenses for the house is about four to $500 per month. So we would cash flow, but it's not probably the best return on investment. Japan is mainly, people do invest in properties in Japan, but it's mainly for cash flow. It's very stable. People usually rent and never leave. 
So you'll have people that are in there for 10, 20 years. Uh, but rents do decrease over time if somebody moves out and then moves back in. So yeah, it's, it's a very unique market. And that's why I don't really own any investment property in Japan, even though there probably are some opportunities. All of my properties are in the United States. Yeah, we didn't touch on that at the beginning. And I want to now, do you mind going into the, the properties you have in the United States and, and how those investments have come about and why you decided to get into them? Yeah, definitely. I, I could talk about that all day. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, so as I said, I divided, I love talking about real estate. And as I said, I, a lot of Japanese people don't like talking about it. My wife's the exception. I have, I've divided into three sections. The first are my personal rentals. Uh, and this is actually also a very interesting story with the Japanese tax situation, which is one of the benefits. Um, for the, I have 13 properties. One of them is a duplex and these are all properties I own in my personal name. Three of them I own with a partner. My mother is one of my partners and, uh, one of another professor I know is my other partner. And that's because I've run out of, uh, loan slots. Uh, they do count my Japanese home as one loan slot in the United States. So I'm not sure if your, your listeners know, but usually for conventional mortgages, you only get 10 loan slots, right? Per person. So I have 13 of those. Uh, I started investing. I knew I wanted to invest. I had a friend that had invested in Boise, Idaho. And this is before Boise, Idaho became one of the fastest growing rental markets or, or markets in general for real estate. And I got in there at a really great time. I bought a couple properties. I then uh, have bought uh, several properties uh, through a turnkey company in Memphis, Tennessee. And they're great. They're great. You know, you hear some horror who'd you, stories. Who would you use for that? Uh, Mid South home buyers. Mid South, okay. Uh, and those are mostly cash flow. You know, I mean, they have increased in value a little bit, but uh, you know, it's twenty percent cash on cash return yearly. And I've had one of them for five or six years. Um, and then I I moved into uh, Huntsville, Alabama, which is another market I identified about two years ago as I thought it was going to grow. And these are my two growth markets: so Boise and Huntsville. My Boise properties have appreciated, uh, let me see. So I bought them for 120 and the current market value is about 280. And I used that by doing a I cash out. Yeah, it was incredible. And same thing going on with my Huntsville properties, but I've been able to refinance those. And then I took that money and that's when I started investing in some joint ventures with some other investors I met on bigger pockets. The two investors I invested with, one is a real estate attorney and the other one is a, uh, a commercial lender. And, uh, we, we started off, we, we had a plan in Huntsville. I had all the connections, but they wanted to get in and we had a plan to buy a fourplex. And somehow we ended up buying 1900 year old duplexes there, uh, as our first deal, 1.5 million with 20% down and owner financing at 5%. And that has been a journey. <laughs> I mean, they were, they are in bad condition and we've spent, I learned a great lesson there of how much capital you need when working with those type of properties from the beginning. We didn't have that capital. We just sort of have taken our cash flow and poured it in. And after two years, we were down to 13 duplexes. And we're looking to sell the rest of the portfolio. And we've done really well with it, with the sales, but it wasn't our initial plan. Uh, and then we leveraged our um, kind of uh, 
infamy, I guess, in the area for buying those duplexes to get into a 12plex in in uh, Huntsville as well. So those were my two joint ventures. And then uh, this year, I started investing passively in other people's deals. So I bought into a 112 unit in in, uh, Savannah, Georgia, and a 48 unit in El Paso, uh, Texas. And then finally, I I also uh, do some hard money lending I've done about $50,000 and I get an average return of about 10% on that those loans. Interesting. So going forward, do you plan to do more of this the syndication model or are you going to try to source some of your own or or do some more hard money? Well, yeah. So what ended up happening, one of the reasons we're selling the duplexes is my two partners have decided to become syndicators. And I started down that path, but realized that it was very difficult for me to do from Japan. Uh, they, they wanted me to do the investor relations part. And because of the time difference and everything, I just decided it wasn't for me. So they've moved forward on that. And I started investing passively. So my, my plan is actually to diversify a little bit out of residential in the future. I want to get into things like self storage and, uh, maybe medical office, other, other things that are performing well, even in the pandemic and just invest as a passive investor for moving forward. But then, you know, again, I'll probably pick up any opportunistic uh, finds I get. Like I just bought a, I just built a duplex in, in Huntsville this last year as well, because I, I got a good deal on the land. Interesting. So going forward, this is a question that always comes up with, with our listeners. Where do you start allocating your next dollars for investments? Is there a certain order that you kind of go in at this point, or is it really just trying to find that that deal that makes sense? Well, I think the thing, looking at my portfolio, I feel that I'm very overweight in real estate. So I'm looking to actually build up my equity portfolio a bit more. I don't think I'm ever going to get to this classic allocation where I have 15% real estate or 20% real estate. Because that's where I've mainly made my money, and I seem to be pretty good at it. I, I hope I'm not uh, <laughs> saying that, and it's just you know because the market's been so good. So, uh, uh, but I, I think I'll always be mostly real estate. But I, I'd like to get that a little bit more even. But what I am doing in the future, and what I've started to make the connections with, is people that operate who are syndicators in the space of like, uh, especially storage right now is what I'm looking at. And I've been vetting those operators and looking at their deals. Uh, so when hopefully next year, when I exit the duplex portfolio and I have a lot of money in my hand, a good portion will go back into equities, but then the other part will probably go into a syndication deal. Uh, in in self storage. Yeah, it's really neat, Dan, and, and neat that you've been able to build it up while living abroad. Yeah, it's, just, it's it's really interesting, and in, and in, in that you built up a lot of it while you were abroad. I mean, we've had others that live abroad and have U.S. investments, but oftentimes they've purchased the investments before they've moved overseas. So, yeah. Anyway, congrats on your success. It's it's really interesting. So, just want to wrap up here with a couple rapid fire questions. How old sure. were you? Do you remember when you became a millionaire? So we actually passed the threshold this early this year. So I was 42. Okay. And annual household spending, how much do you spend a year? This one will be particularly interesting because you do live abroad. Yeah. So as I said, our our monthly necessity spending is about $2,000 a month. I would say that in addition to that, we, you know, 
whatever trips. I, I'm also lucky with my job that a lot of things like my business trips are all paid for. And my wife is also a lecturer. So quite often we do research together. We went to Hawaii like three times last year as part of, you know, a government grant to do research. So we don't spend a lot, but I would say probably about $35,000 a year max is our, our spending. So that's pretty low, Dan. I almost would have thought living in Japan would be more, but near a big city or more out in, in a rural area? So I'm about 20 minutes from Kyoto by train. So that's a pretty big city. Japan, I think people have that impression that it's very expensive and it is not. It's, it's, uh, I find it much cheaper to live in Japan than when I go back to, to the United States. We also, of course, you know, have a national healthcare system. And so it keeps those costs very, very low. And the other thing that I didn't really touch on, I'll just say it briefly, was up until this year, there has also been a, a big tax loophole with holding properties in the U.S. So uh, because of the way the Japanese government values properties and the way they with mostly being in the land, they offered uh, a tax incentive that if you buy properties that are over 20 years old, you can depreciate the entire structure in four years. And it doesn't work with Japanese properties because there's no value. But if you go to the United States and you buy properties, and we didn't know this when we started, we're able to depreciate the entire value of the structure within four years directly off our income. So our taxes have been extremely low, almost non-existent in Japan during the last five years. Unfortunately for us, but uh, you know, there's really no reason the Japanese government should do this. But they've caught the loophole, and it will be closed after this year. So, um, so I do, I do expect my taxes to go up quite a bit uh, starting next year. Uh, but from a living expense standpoint, you know, we still keep our, our living expenses quite low. Okay, good for you guys. And what's been your range of household income through your working life? So, uh, yeah, it, it really went up. So it started off. I was making about thirty thousand a year. My wife was making fifteen thousand a year when we first got married about 11, 11, 12 years ago. And uh, our current salary, uh, it's just slowly gone up. I make about $100,000 a year and my wife makes about thirty. So we, we really live off of my wife's salary. Good for you, us. though. You've, tri- you've tripled that. Yeah. Um, of course, there were expenses getting there for I, you know, my master's, doctorate degree and all that. But, um, but yeah, I've, I'm up to about $100,000 a year. Uh, unfortunately, there isn't much growth beyond that in uh, Japanese universities for tenured positions. So I could probably expect only to make about $120,000 a year total by the time I'm retiring. But that's why I've been growing my portfolio. Yeah, good for you. So let's just wrap it up, Dan. I mean, really interesting story, living abroad, moving abroad, get, getting your doctorate degree, becoming a professor. What mistakes have you made along the way? You mentioned it a little bit at the beginning with your dad, right? There were You kind of learned what not to do financially, but couple that with some advice, somebody that's maybe 30 years old or 25 years old. What would your financial advice be? Yeah, so I think the, the, the takeaway, I didn't really go into this, but the takeaway with my father was my father was very dis, uh, distrustful of experts. Uh, and I think that comes from his, his background. He was an engineer, but he didn't have a degree. He got in before there was a, uh, you know, you needed a degree to do that. And so he, he was, even when he was in business, he didn't want to consult 
CPAs or financial advisors. And while I, I'm not a proponent of handing all your money over to financial advisors, one of the things my wife and I both agree on, especially being in Japan and being a U.S. citizen, is that we are willing to pay people to get the right answers before we make certain moves. So like with our estate planning, that was something that we really had to pay a lot of money to do, but we didn't want to get bitten by it later on. When we have an issue that comes up and we're trying to make a decision on something, we're willing to pay somebody to, to give us the right answer and to research it properly. So I think that's one of my biggest things I learned from my father that I do differently. On the other hand, for my personal mistakes, the, the biggest mistake I made was not starting early enough, which I'm sure everybody says. I didn't start till I was 30 and I wasted a lot of years, uh, especially having certain military benefits uh, early on. I could have taken advantage and I didn't do that. And then last one is with real estate, when buying properties like I did with that duplex portfolio, you need to have the capital. You need to be properly capitalized when you go into those type of properties uh, and not just rely on cash flow to to fund the fix ups. Um, so that was one big mistake that I think I've learned over the last two years. Awesome, Daniel. Well, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your story. Really interesting and, and a unique perspective that we certainly haven't heard before on the show. So I appreciate you coming Thank on you. and sharing your thoughts. Everybody, again, that's Daniel Networth of 1.2, works as a college professor in Japan. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you so much. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.